So this is part two of church restoration, and we'll be out of Matthew 18, verses 10 to 20. But just a review to, to provide more context before we get into scriptures. Last week, we preached on point number one, the heaviness of church restoration. What, what, do we, what do we mean by that? That every child of God matters to God. Every son and daughter, these little ones, the Bible says, matters. Doesn't mean doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, or young or old what ethnicity you are, what nation you're part of, what social economic status you have. Every child of God matters. And in point number two, we talked about the heart of church restoration. And Jesus masterfully illustrates this in the story of the shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes after the one straying sheep. This is, about, this is a rescue mission. Church restoration is about a rescue mission. And then we touched on the third point, the how of church restoration. There's four steps in the hows that the Lord gives us. And the first step we went over is go to him privately. If you see a brother or sister in sin, go to him privately, discreetly. Give him an opportunity to respond to what you've noticed. And hopefully they repent and they're restored. And if, they, if they're repentant after step number one, that's where it stops. But today... We're going to continue on with point number three, the how of church restoration. We're going to go through steps two, three, and four. And then fourth point, we're going to talk about the heavenly backing of church restoration. So, so please rise as we'll be out of Matthew 18, chapter 10. I mean, chapter 18, verse 10 through 20. I'll be reading out of the NASB version. God's word says this in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, Christians. For I say to you that the, their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 12. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your, of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish, not one Christian. Now here are the steps. Verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Rejoice. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Verse 19, about prayer. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Let's pray briefly. Father, thank you for your word. I pray by your spirit that your word will be preached with power and conviction. I pray your spirit would move us to the ministry of the word to love Jesus more. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Thanks for doing that every week. The reason why we rise is just to honor God. 
by honoring his word as we stand. That's why we do that. Our family, our family for the last 10 years, have, during this time in July, pre-coronavirus, we would drive from Washington down to Los Angeles, down to five freeway. And then we moved down here three years ago, then it became the other way. We would drive up to Washington to see grandma and grandpa and family. And it's about an 18-hour process. Of course, we'll make stops, and, and so it becomes longer. But as you can imagine, it gets a little restless in our minivan at the time, and now our suburban. So we resorted to using the DVD player. I don't know if you could relate. But one of the shows that we started watching back in 2010 was Little House on the Prairie. All right, so for those of us who don't know what that show is, it started off as a book. Pastor Dan told me he read these books growing up, and it got, it got morphed into a television series from the mid-70s to early 80s, right? I think for about nine years. And the setting is in the late 1800s in the Midwest, I think in Minnesota. And there's a man and a wife, and, and they have three daughters at the time, and uh, they're try, just trying to make a life in, in the Midwest, and it was a harsh time, it was difficult. And one of the episodes that we just re recently watched as a family is titled Little Girl Lost. Little Girl Lost. So in essence, what happened is that the, the three daughters were out looking for bugs for their school project. And they, they, they brought their little sister along, youngest Carrie is, her, Carrie is her name. And she went off chasing a butterfly, as we, a lot of us would do in the forest. And all of a sudden, woof, there was a drop. Well, what happened was she stepped into a covered-up hole, which ended up being an air shaft for a mine. And so the two older sisters go over there, and they're looking for her, calling her. They could hear her voice, but they couldn't reach her. So they said, we got it. Let's go get Paul. So the, the, the middle daughter, Laura, who's the athletic one, she goes running back into town. Paul, Paul, we need your help. So Paul and Ma come in their wagon, and... Dad paused, reaching down there, and he, she could almost touch him, and all of a sudden she starts slipping down the, 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 the air shaft even more. Paul couldn't handle it. So what happens, Paul goes running to town on his wagon, and basically the whole, he recruits the whole town to come, and the whole town of Walnut Grove shows up to help rescue Carrie. And this is just what church restoration is like. Hopefully, we could handle it one-on-one, -on -one, and most of the cases are handled there. But the, this may be a bigger situation where more than one brother or sister could handle. You may need to bring in more reinforcements and get more backing. And so to, for the first point that we're going to talk about, the how of church restoration, you're going to see how God gives us church backing on how to help rescue one of our sinning brothers or sisters. So point number one is the how church restoration, but we're going to focus in on step number two. Step number one, just to review, is you go to them privately, one-on-one. -on -one. Step number two starts off here in verse 16 of Matthew 18. But if he does not listen to you, that one, all right, that's step one, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Bible says Jesus, the head of the church, gives us specific instructions. If they don't listen to you, 
Obviously, you give them, there's a series of time that goes by. This is not an immediate next day sort of thing. After prayer, after giving several appeals, say, no, I think I'm in over my head. I, need, I think I need more help. I need more church backing. Then you bring in one or two more with you. And the circle just got wider in helping in, in, on this rescue mission. I need more backing. You acknowledge it. And why does the Lord call us to bring one or two witnesses? Well, this is so that every fact may be confirmed. This is a quote out of Deuteronomy 19.15, and basically this describes the primary legal statutes of the Old Testament. There's a lot of wisdom in God's truth here. By bringing in two or three with you, this better confirms the issue. Perhaps me, the witness, maybe may have saw it wrongly. Maybe I misinterpreted the situation and what that person is saying, the one being questioned, is saying, no, there's no problem here. So that having another or another brother or sister with us could say, no, I actually saw the same thing. I actually know the same thing, noticed the same thing, Rocky. And I felt weird about it, and I heard them talking about it. Yeah, I think there's an issue there. So by bringing in another and another, it basically protects the one being questioned. So they're not falsely accused. That's one. But also protects the one questioning so that I'm able to see things clearly if you're the one going to that sinning brother or sister. And you may even bring up in a pastor or one of the leaders to help mediate. You know, so there's wisdom in bringing two or three to help with the rescue mission. And the Bible says if you want over a brother or sister, stop right there. All you need is step number one. That doesn't work. Step number two, if that works, stop right there. Done. Done. No more, no more people needs to be brought into this whole situation. Now, going back to that story uh, with uh, Little House on a Prayer, they brought Pa, and he tried. He could almost touch her, and boom, she went, she went down the, the air shaft even deeper. They needed more help. So step number three out of verse 17 says this, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Wow. Tell it to the whole church, Jesus? Now, what does Jesus mean by the church? We learned a few weeks ago, church means ecclesia. The original word is ecclesia. Ecclesia means gathered ones, the assembly, the, the gathered ones of, of, of my people. All right, so these are recognized Christians in the assembly. And last week, we had an exciting time during a congregational meeting. We had about, about five or so who were brought into church membership. And that was great. That's, that was encouraging and exciting. And I just have a conviction, along with our leaders, that we need to continue to elevate what it means to be a church member here at Evergreen SGV. Here's an example. My wife and I, we became members before we moved up to Washington over 10 years ago, and and when we moved up to Washington, we joined our church, and in, in essence, we didn't have to revoke our church membership to Evergreen, but we were gone for over, to, uh, over seven, eight years, but we were still members of Evergreen. And so when we came back, we didn't have to reapply. We were already members. Well, the issue there is, what does it mean to be a member if I'm not even around, right? And so... What does it mean to be a member of Evergreen SGB? And we're in the process of elevating this. Pastor Dan is teaching on this. We're talking about it as a pastoral leadership team. 
In essence, if you're a member at Evergreen SUV, you're a recognized, baptized believer. Meaning, we recognize that, yes, you're actually one of these little ones. You're a brother or sister in the Lord. And also, to confirm that even further, you've, been, you've undergone believer's baptism. What is believer's baptism? That means that someone who's a true believer in Christ is baptized in the water to affirm to, and, and to his, commitment, his or her commitment to the Lord. And either, either been baptized here at Evergreen SUV. I remember being baptized at Rio Hondo Pool. And if you've joined us recently and perhaps you've been baptized at your old church, that's great. As long as you've been baptized under a faithful church. Second thing that church members at Evergreen have is that you embrace and affirm our statement of faith. We've been, we went through a process with these uh, can member these candidates, and we went over, this is our statement of faith. Do you believe this? Do you affirm this? These are the core doctrines of what, uh, Orthodox Christianity. Do you affirm these things and agree to these things? And also, new, uh, church members agree that discipleship is the central theme of the church. We're going to learn this in a few weeks in Matthew 28, how discipleship is the absolute central theme of any faithful church. What is discipleship? You're bringing people to Christ. We're actively involved in evangelism. We're sharing the gospel so people could come to a saving relationship with Christ. But also, discipleship is edification. We're trying to edify, build up one another to become more like Christ. That's what discipleship is. Church members also agree upon a, the covenant of membership. And one of the points that's, uh, that, that this document has is that all members accept biblical discipline. Exactly what we're talking about, church restoration. Meaning, yes, I'm signing up to be a member. Yes, I know I am eligible for church discipline or church restoration. Meaning, I want you church family to watch over my soul so I don't go off the proverbial spiritual cliff. This is what church members desire. Therefore, church members should be in relationship with one another. Ah, true, we're a bigger church, so we're not able to know each other as intimately, but are we actively involved in intimate relationships within the body of Christ at Evergreen SGB so that we're known and that we know others? Church members also affirm their commitment to the church family, meaning when, when the new members were, were signed up last week, they're basically saying, I am committed to Evergreen SUV. I'm committed to my time, my energy, my spiritual gift, my resources to, to invest into the church family here at Evergreen SUV. And also, conversely, the church family is saying, hey, we affirm you, we embrace you, we are committed to you as well. We'll help you in your spiritual journey. So ultimately, church members are eligible for the ultimate soul care. We care about you so much that we'll go through these steps to care for your soul. We're watching, we got everyone's back. We're watching each other. And this is why church membership is so important. And if you're thinking about becoming a member, I would exhort you, encourage you. If this is your church family, really pray and take seriously 
do I want to be a church member here? And, and do it. We would love that. We would love to come alongside you and to help you grow as a Christian. This is why we're here. This is exactly why we're here. Now, step number four, I mean, step number three says, tell it to the church. Why is that necessary, right? You may be thinking, what? You're going to tell someone's sin issue to the entire church membership? What? Why, why, why is that even necessary? I mean, this is a, perhaps countercultural to how many of us think. But our Lord clearly says, tell it to the church. Verse 17. Let me tell you why. Let me go back to the story with Carrie falling into the mine. The entire town showed up. All of Walnut Grove showed up. And some of the people had th different things to offer. For example, one of the people of uh, Walnut Grove offered supplies, ropes and shovels and lanterns. It got dark as they got into this rescue mission. And then also, not only that, manpower is needed. So many people to dig. I'm talking feet and tonnage of, of dirt that were digging and digging. They needed men to continue to keep digging. Leadership showed up, and this is how you do, how, this is how you dig into a mine. This is what you do from keeping the, the, the tunnel from collapsing. So there's expertise that was given. Even the pastor showed up, and he provided moral support to, to the mother whose daughter was in the shaft, and provided moral support to the men and women who were serving to rescue this child. And even an engineer showed up, and he's the one who had knowledge of the mine shaft, and he knew how to get to her before the whole thing caved in on itself. Just like this situation when we tell it to our church, we're, we pool the entire church membership with all the gifts, all the relational currency. Perhaps somebody in the church has a special connection, relationship to that person. They have to speak to them in, in a unique way. We're gathering more prayer support. The whole church can be coming along together to pray for this brother or sister who's lost. So restoration takes the whole church at times. The whole church family needs to get involved to restore, to save, and rescue one of our sinning brothers and sisters. Different gifts may be employed. Some of us have the gift of compassion. And they mixed in when some of us are a little bit more bold and direct and say, we need to keep doing this, guys. This is important. So you mix all that together and you have the more of Christ coming after this person. Think about what I just said. Whenever the church family is able to pool all its giftings and personality and resources, you have a fuller picture of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, coming after that person. This is why you tell it to the church. And this is what happens now. This is what happens in step number three. And hopefully, that's it. Now, you may be asking, Pastor, what type of sins weren't this, right? You may be saying, Rocky, what, do we do this for everything? Now, Obviously, we all struggle with sin, me included, you know, me included. But what, what type of sins will actually warrant us to taking this to step number three where we tell it to the whole church? Well, Jonathan Lehman in this, this book that I talked about last week, Jonathan Lehman is a member of Nine Marks and he's wrote this book uh, called Church Discipline. He, he gives three reasons. One reason is one mark of a uh, type of sin to address uh, at this level is, is it outward? 
Is it outward? Meaning, meaning, are you able to observe this and know that they're actually in this type of sin? Are you able to see this? Are you able to hear this? So this is not going like, I think there's some sin in that person's heart. That's not where you're going off. This is a visible thing. This is a public thing where you are able to see this happening, where sin manifests itself in an observable way. Secondly, is this significant? Is this significant? Is this a pattern of sin where you wonder, how can you, being a believer, act this way? Right? So this causes one to wonder, like, hmm, can a true believer actually be okay with this? Right? So you have concern over your brother or sister and say, you know what, this is, this is not okay. I'm really worried about you. I don't know how you could consider yourself a Christian being involved with this sort of a thing. And then thirdly, is, is this sin unrepentant? All right? Is this sin, sin unrepentant? So if that's the case and, and the sin is unrepentant after step three, telling it to the church, step number four here, verse 17 and if he refuses to listen even to the church, this is Jesus' word now, the head of the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now keep in mind, this is a Jew, in the Jewish context. These disciples are Jewish. And so a Gentile is basically a pagan person, a godless person, in other words. Someone outside of God's family. And a tax collector during that time was a, basically a known sinner. A tax collector worked for Rome, and tax collectors were known for cheating his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters by charging them more. They're dishonest. A tax collector is synonymous with a recognized or known sinner. So a pagan, a godless person, and a tax collector, an open, outward sinner, meant basically this is a non-believer. Treat him as a non-believer. So instead of appealing to them as a little one, as a brother or sister, please repent. You have some serious concerns that this person may not actually be a Christian. This one may be a tear. This one may be a goat instead of a sheep. So instead of treating them like brother or sister, treat them like a friend. What do I mean by that? You start, you look into, you start looking to evangelize this person. You start ministering the gospel for salvation. And this is what happens. And, and you, you want to re remove the covering of the church so that this person needs to really consider, is there really an issue with me? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes about a situation where a man was sleeping with his mother-in-law, an incestuous uh, relationship which the Corinthian church did nothing to address. A very serious thing. And so Paul comes in hard and says, this is unacceptable. You need to exercise church restoration for this man. Help him out. Help out the whole church. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why, Paul? Why to this extreme measure? So that this, his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus so that this person will not experience spiritual shipwreck. Paul says to hand them over to Satan. Hand them over, meaning this is what the culmination of church discipline ends up in, is basically excommunication. Not in the way of the Roman Catholics, 
where people were excommunicated. They're no longer able to take communion, which they believe was a means of salvation. We don't believe that. That's not what the Bible teaches. But now we, we remove them from the covering of the church, hand them over to Satan. In essence, the church family is saying, it's not business as usual, friend. You really need to consider. This is so important that we're willing to do this for you. So what are the things that would happen when you hand them over to Satan? One, they're not allowed to take communion. Why is that, pastor? Isn't that harsh? Well, communion is for recognized believers in the church. That's why every month, next, next Lord's Day, I'll say, make sure you're taking communion in a worthy manner. Communion is for the Christian. So if the church family is starting to question someone's genuine salvation, they're not allowed to take communion. You should not be taking communion if you're in this situation. Number two, those who have been handed over to Satan are not allowed to serve in any official capacity here at Evergreen SGV. Why is that? Well, we don't want to confuse the one that's being disciplined. We don't want them to feel like we're still using their gifts. Meanwhile, we're, there's an issue there. We don't want them to be confused. And also, we don't want the flock to be confused as well. Like, why is he or she still serving? Like, are, isn't there some kind of issue there? Is the church leadership actually okay with this? We don't want to cause confusion. We don't want to have division over the church. So the church understands this is a situation and this is what's happening. Now, is church discipline, is this a shunning? No, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about shunning someone. Like, I can't look at you. You have the scarlet letter. We can't talk to you. We can't look to you. That's not what this is talking about. I mean, I, I could see someone in this who's been through step four to be allowed to be in church service. Where else would we rather have them be to hear preaching of the word and constant encouragement to repent? But what this could mean is that socially, it's not business as usual. Meaning, of course, we could talk and perhaps even hang out, but the center of our conversations is about restoration. It's no longer business as usual. It's no longer made to feel like it's all good. It isn't all good, brother, sister, friend. There's something dire. I care for you so much. I want you to really consider this. Paul says, hand them over to Satan. Hand them over to Satan. Now let's turn to Acts chapter 5 here. Here's a biblical example. Here's an example from the early church how God handled sin in the early church. Acts chapter 5 is basically an account of the early church. And just a little bit of context of the early church. Basically, Pentecost happens, meaning the Holy Spirit comes down upon all the believers in Jerusalem. And during that time, there was a lot of pilgrims that traveled from all over the region to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. Now, what happens with these Men and women were converted to Christ, and they didn't want to go home. They wanted to be with the church. They wanted to hang out with other Christians. What's the problem? Is, there, is this is that housing is an issue? They, they're looking for housing, food, resources. And so to care for the church family, members of, of, of those who were from Jerusalem sent, ended up selling their possessions, selling their property, and giving their, the resources to the apostles to take care of these needs. 
So this is a genuine gesture of generosity that was taking place in the early church. Now, however, here comes Ananias and Sapphira. Let's take a look. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. They're in collusion. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. So is a sin in selling off property? No, there's no sin in that. Is there a sin in keeping some of the proceeds? Of course not. Of course not. No one's obligated to give everything that they have. The sin is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? In essence, they're affronting. They're, they're putting on the mask for show. It's all theater to show, like, okay, we sold everything. Look how generous we are. We're giving everything. Obviously, the Spirit of God gave Peter insight into this and, and, and goes after them. And the hypocrisy was to show was this all about show? And Ananias, keep in mind, were probably prominent members of the church, probably Christians. And evidently, they're wealthy. They could sell off property and donate a big chunk to the church. Now, Peter, keep in mind, is the new leader of the new church. And this is a watershed moment for him. As if the Lord is challenging him, how serious are you going to take this role, Peter? How serious are you about caring and pastoring my people? So what would Peter do? What would Peter do? Well, Peter, as we read in verse 3, he questions Ananias and challenges him. And in verse 4, he goes, You have not lied to men, but to God. Right? And then look what happens next. Verse 5. And as he heard, Ananias heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. God steps in. Jesus himself steps in and addresses how serious sin is in the church. Right from the get-go, God did not allow this sort of sin this hypocrisy to be existed, existing in the, in the early church. God kills them. God kills them. And then three hours later, Sapphira, his wife, shows up. And Peter asks him, in verse 8, Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. He gives her a chance to be honest. And she said, yes, that was the price. That was the price that my husband and I agreed to say to the church. She has her mask on. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. What does it mean to put God to the test? The analogy is this, you know, as I tell my children sometimes, Hey, are you testing me? <laughs> so it's like when children test their parents to see, How far can I go before they discipline me? How far can I push it? So when we're in sin, when we put the Lord to the test, we're saying, how far can I push the envelope before I receive some kind of discipline? 
oh, surely God is gracious and loving. He'll understand that we're all sinners and he'll understand. That's testing the Lord. That's, te- that's putting the Lord to the test. So in the, in the early church, God took matters into his own hand and guess what? She ends up dropping dead. And the same man who carried her, her, her husband out to bury her comes and carries her body out and buries her. Jesus is very serious about the holiness of his church. Absolutely serious. And in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11.30, talks about how some people have gotten sick due to their sin, they've even fallen asleep. Sleep means death. They've died. And God was setting the culture of his church. That's what he was doing. That's exactly what he was doing in the early church. Now, could God do this today? Yeah, absolutely he could do this today. But I believe primarily he's put church restoration and the holiness, the care of the holiness of his church in the hands of us, the brotherhood and sisterhood. But God was setting the standard right from the beginning now. This is where God was saying, no, my church is holy. My church is pure. There's no room for pretense. There's no room for hypocrisy in the church. And he's setting the standard. Now, as we read uh, Matthew 18, I mean, the steps are go to them privately, one-on-one, take two or three with you, tell to the church, and if they don't respond after that, Treat him like a non-believer. I mean, it, it's not overly complicated in what our Lord is telling us. The instructions are fairly clear. The reasons even make sense. Of course, everyone matters. We would say amen to that. However, this is hard to do. I mean, as a pastor of Evergreen SUV, this is challenging. This is absolutely challenging. This is hard to do. Who wants to do something like this? No one looks forward to, all right, let's tell the sin of somebody to the entire church membership. Okay, let, let's excommunicate somebody. Who wants to do those things, all right? But God gives us church backing to help us out. We're not alone in this. We need one another. And we're all called to get involved in this. However, that's not enough. He also gives us heavenly backing. Heavenly backing. Point number four of this uh, two-part sermon is the heavenly backing of church restoration. The heavenly backing of church restoration. Verse 18 says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What is this talking about? In context, we're talking about church restoration. Jesus is talking about, basically, if you are able to declare someone restored, well, unrestored, heaven is in agreement with you. Basically, you're declaring by going through the steps that our Lord prescribes to take in restoring somebody what heaven's already decided. You're, we're able to tell the people where they're at based on the authority of Scripture. And heaven is also saying this is a very worthy and necessary thing. Jesus adds this quote, which he added in in chapter 16 of Matthew, to basically say you're in harmony with heaven when you actually go after sinning brothers and sisters. This is the heart of God. All we're called to do is to follow the prescribed orders of the head of the church. There it is, clearly in the scriptures. Now, 
Verse 19 here may be familiar to many of us. This is a prayer passage. And it says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. This is a prayer passage. When two or three agree, meaning we are able to confirm the issue, and two or three are fervently praying for the restoration of somebody. God hears those prayers, the Bible says. We have the bat, we're backed by the power of prayer. And this word agree here in verse 19, in the original language is symphoneo, symphoneo. Symphoneo, in essence, means we're in harmony with one another, with other brothers. There's agreement with other brothers and sisters. We're in concert with one another. This is not a solo mission. That means that there's agreement. Yes, we need to pray fervently for restoration. Intercessory prayer. Prayer and restoration go hand in hand. For brothers and sisters, we could do steps one, two, three, and four perfectly. Even our hearts could be right. We're doing it lovingly, tenderly. We have the heart of compassion. We, we want to restore this sinning brother or sister. We want to rescue them. All that could be good, but at the end of the day, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit where anyone is restored like this. We need heaven's backing for any restoration to take place. It goes beyond just the church. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to come down from heaven and to restore any sinning brother or sister. This is absolutely paramount. That's why this prayer verse is here. Right after restoration, Jesus is talking about you need to be praying. Praying as a group for restoration. That's why as we pray for the nations, this is why it's powerful to be able to pray for one another, with one another. But in church restoration, we call to pray to our Lord to restore our sinning brother or sister. Now, although the desired result is restoration, we all want this. We all want this. We desire this. But the actual goal is to be faithful. Simply be faithful. Faithful to follow the steps lovingly. Be faithful to pray. At the end of the day, it's up to God, the good shepherd, Jesus himself, to restore any lost sheep. It's just like evangelism. Whenever you share the gospel, the goal is to be faithful in evangelizing the lost. You share the gospel clearly, plainly, the whole gospel. There is no partial gospel. And trust, God, please do what you will with this one. Please save this one. Evangelism, be faithful. Church restoration, simply be faithful. Steps one, two, three, and four. Now let's take a look at the church here in Acts chapter 5. Let's go back to Acts 5. What happened to the church? Let's take a look at what happened. What happened to the church when they took holiness seriously? Verse 11, chapter 5, Acts 5. This is what happened, brothers and sisters. This is exactly what happened. The Bible re records this for all of us to know. Verse 11 of chapter 5 of Acts. And great fear came over the whole church. And over all who heard of these things, every member of the church feared God more. They respected God more. They revered God more. They were in awe of God more. And those who heard what happened, did you hear about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? What? I thought they're solid members of the church. They dropped dead. 
They lied to God. They're lying to the leaders, and God took them out. What? In our context, did you hear about what the church leaders did? They announced so-and-so sent to the entire church. What? This created a sense of awe and respect for Jesus Christ, the head of the church. And this word church right here is the first time church is used in the book of Acts. The church was being refined. The ecclesia, the gathering of God's people were being refined where they're looking at Jesus with greater respect and honor and awe. When this happens, what happens is that people are more fearful of sinning against God. Against God. 1 Timothy 5.20 says, says this, so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. There's a purifying effect that happens when these sort of things are happening. When holiness is elevated. 1 Corinthians 5.6 talks about a little leaven or a little yeast leavens or, or leavens the whole lump. If you allow sin to be alive in the church, it actually affects the whole church, the Bible says. It lowers our view of God. That is sin. Let's go to verse 12 here, Acts chapter 5. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. The, the apostles were performing miracles, and guess what happened? And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. What does that mean? One accord, one mind. This unified the church where the church was saying, I get it, this is about Christ. He's the head of the church. This is about him. This is not about us. We need to maintain the holiness of the church. We need to be serious about discipling one another so that we could be as holy as possible. One mind, one accord. This unified the church family actually. Because, brothers and sisters, sin dissolves true fellowship. Discord happens when the leadership do not take sin seriously. When the pastors, when the church leaders do not take sin seriously, there's discord. People are bewildered like, what? I guess this is not real. I guess we're just kind of playing church. This is not the actual church. That's why every staff member, every pastor, every lay leader, every board member is committed to the holiness of the church, starting with our own lives, starting with our own lives and making sure we maintain the holiness of the church here at Evergreen SGV. Let's look at verse 13 here of Acts chapter 5. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. What does that mean? That means that the watching world feared the church they did not want to get involved. Man, people are dying over there. I'm not going to join that church. I don't want to join that sect. I'm not going to join this thing called Christianity. I don't want to die. Verse 13 finishes off. However, the people held them in high esteem. They respected the church. They absolutely respected the church. And they may not like the church, but they respected the church. As Christians, our goal is not to be liked by the world. Our goal is not to be accepted by the world. Our goal is to be faithful to Christ. They will respect us. I've been reading this book by Mark Dever here. He's also part of Nine Marks. 
This book is called What is a Healthy Church? And he talked about this concept, closed or open door. All right, let me just read a, 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 a paragraph out of this small book here to explain what he's talking about. Mark Devers writes, One church growth writer recently summed up his strategy on growing churches by saying, open the front door, right, wide open, and close the back door. By this, he means that churches should make themselves more accessible to outsiders while also doing a better job of follow-up. He continues to write, These are good goals. Yet I suspect that most pastors and churches today already aspire to do this and to a fault. So let me offer what I believe is a more biblical strategy. Guard carefully the front door and open the back door. In other words, make it more difficult to join on the one hand and make it easier to be excluded on the other. Remember, the path to life is narrow, not broad. Doing this, I believe, will help churches recover their divinely intended distinction from the world. This is what the Lord was doing. The Lord was making sure that all Christians who showed up, or let me say all professing Christians that showed up were actual Christians. And those who needed to go, the Lord removed. The Lord can remove actual believers from earth to keep sending believers from doing damage to the church and to Jesus' mission. Let's finish off here in Acts 5.14. Look what happened here. Jesus was building his church. He says this, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Jesus was building his church. These are legitimate brothers and sisters who wanted this, who seen a genuineness in the brotherhood and sisterhood. They say they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're living it. There's a holiness to their lives. There is no hypocrisy. See, when we take the holiness of the church seriously, you repel those who love their sin. You repel those who love their sin, meaning darkness hates the light. But conversely, conversely, that door is a lot narrow, more narrow, but you also attract those who love Christ, those who want to pursue holiness. When the, when the world can see that we love Christ so much and we love each other so much that we're able to do this for one another, there's something uncanny about that. There's something distinct about that, brothers and sisters. We're not supposed to look like the world. We're not supposed to be collecting non-believers in this, in this church family. We're called to call the children of God forward. I'm just going to finish up here. Let's go back to Matthew 18. I have this question before as we close up here. Do we want Jesus to show up in a powerful and profound way here at Evergreen SUV? Do you? Of course we do. Of course we do. Let's read Matthew 18, 20. Let's, let's see what the Lord says. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, praying for restoration, praying for the holiness of the church, I am there in their midst. 
Do you want Christ and the church to show up in a powerful, tangible way? Let's be about church restoration. Let's be fervently praying for the holiness of his church. Let's be fervently praying for the restoration of sinning brothers and sisters. Christ will be more obvious when we can see changed lives. Like, man, you're not the same as it used to be. Husband, you're not the same man that, I, that you were a couple years ago. Something's happened. Jesus shows up in a more tangible way when lives are starting to look more like him. Do you want Christ to show up here at Evergreen? Of course we do. Of course we do. Then let's care about the holiness of his church. Christ, the head of the church, will show up when we absolutely care about the beauty and the purity of his church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to go over Matthew 18. Thank you for your powerful word, Lord. Lord, I pray that your spirit is ministering this word to our hearts right now. Jesus, we know that you want to get what you paid for. Jesus, you paid with your body and your blood to purchase the church. Jesus, you want fully what you paid for, Lord, and you call us to be holy as you are holy. So, Lord, I pray you elevate the holiness of Evergreen SUV. I pray, Lord, that we will look more beautiful, more pure, more holy like you, Jesus. So, Father, I pray for the hearts of our church family, Lord, that we would just love you so much that we want to become like you. And we love you so much that we care about one another, that we will go after them. We'll go on this rescue mission that you've deployed us on. So, Jesus, show up with power, Lord. Just like you did in Acts, show up with power as you said, I will build my church upon this rock. So, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would do this. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is so good. In Jesus' name, amen.